Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. To what extent is it possible to study the self scientifically? That's a question that's often uppermost in Jonathan Schooler's mind. Jonathan, professor of psychology at UC Santa Barbara, has long been fascinated by, as he calls it, finding the balance between the first-person and third-person perspective. Most scientific approaches, of course, are unabashedly oriented towards the dispassionately removed objective third-person viewpoint in the quest for knowledge. But while this has unquestionably led to considerable progress in our understanding of the laws of nature, when it comes to understanding ourselves, such an agenda is naturally going to leave many highly significant aspects unexplored, which is precisely when Jonathan's first-person insights come into play. So let's start off talking about meta-awareness. Sure. Um, and uh, as, as the principal investigator of the Meta Lab and as somebody who's uh, been, been thinking about meta issues for a long time. Maybe you can start off uh, telling us what you mean by meta awareness. Telling yeah. us, here I am being the royal we, telling me <laughs> what, what you mean by meta awareness. Sure. Well, uh, I sort of have the good news and the bad news about meta awareness. The good news is I have a particular experience we've all had that I think really captures the essence of the notion. The bad news is I'm not sure that any of the research that I'm going to be able to tell you about can top that, that the, the personal experience we've all had really just nails it. And it's really been hard to do anything that quite nails it as well as that own experience. So, so it all goes downhill from here? It, I'm afraid so. <laughs> this is, start, start with your strengths. Yeah. So here's the experience, and I, I'm sure you've had it. You're reading along, and you're, at some point you suddenly realize that although your eyes have been moving across the page, your mind has been completely elsewhere. Are you you're familiar with that yeah, experience? All too, all too frequently. Yeah, and this is the thing, when you tell people this, they, they always sort of have this sort of sheepish look like, yes, welcome to my world, this happens to me all the time. We all have this experience of reading and suddenly realizing, where have I been? And, and, and it's not just, um, it, there's a surprise to it. You're, 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 you're literally startled uh, at the fact that you've been reading for this period of time. And so the question is, why do we do this? In some situations, for example, if you're, if you're mind-wandering during a lecture, you can't just say, you know, could you please stop talking? I'd like to uh, mind-wander for a while. But when you're reading, you can stop. You can close the book. No one's got a gun to your head. No one is insisting that you uh, continue reading. And yet you do. And the question is why? And the conclusion that I came to was that you do this because you've lost track of the content of your own mind. You, uh, what meta-awareness is, is that moment of realizing, oh my God, I've been mind-wandering again. It's that taking stock of your current mental state and acknowledging what it is. In the case of mind-wandering while reading, it's like, oh, my, I've been mindlessly reading. And so that's really the, um, the essence of mind-wandering. And, sorry, the essence of meta-awareness. Right. And the, the idea is that 
uh, we only periodically stop and take stock of what's going on in our minds. For much of the day, we are having experiences, what I call experiential consciousness, or just experience. We're having experience, but we're not stopping to ask ourselves, what is the experience that's going on in my head right now? And the experience of mind wandering while reading and catching yourself really captures that distinction. Right. And you've talked about three different forms of consciousness. When you're actually experiencing something directly, when you may be doing something subconsciously, and then you have the sense of being aware or not being aware of the fact that you're actually having those experiences, this meta level, which hitherto, it seems, hasn't been given a whole lot of attention. Is that, is that fair to say? Well, it, it, it comes and it goes. Um, certainly, uh, people uh, from time to time have talked about things such as a metacognitive awareness. Uh, there's a whole literature, we can, we can talk about this on, uh, on mindfulness. Um, there's uh, metacognition. So people have talked about these issues at some time, but they, what they don't routinely do is talk about how consciousness can be thought of at these three levels, at the unconscious level, at the experiential level, and at the uh, metaconscious or meta-aware level. And I think oftentimes you can get these distinctions confused. That as I think sometimes when people are talking about unconscious and conscious, what they really mean is the distinction between conscious and, and metaconscious. So to take one example, which um, I think really may be the case in some situations, when people are, uh, when, when Freud sort of talked about a repression and keeping things out of, out of consciousness, that, that may happen. It may be that there's some things that are just completely going on underneath the surface that we are completely unaware of that are somehow being kept out of mind. But I think it's also possible, and we have some research on this, that sometimes you can have thoughts, but you just don't let yourself notice that you're having the thoughts. So a, a, a negative uh, thought comes to mind, and you just don't acknowledge it to yourself. And so a lot of the uh, distinctions that we normally have between conscious and unconscious, at least sometimes, that actually is something that hasn't made it into metaconsciousness. So how did it all start for you? I mean, were you someone who had trouble paying attention while you were reading? Is it, <laughs> is my, my gosh, my, my eyes keep scanning this page. I haven't actually taken anything in, and so therefore I'm going to study this more. Or, or were you, were you uh, had you always been interested in meta issues? Because I want to touch on some other issues. I want to talk a lot about mind wandering, but there are other issues with respect to emotion that you look at mm -hmm. from the meta level. You're, you run this meta lab. Um, it, these are clearly ideas looking at the bigger picture, getting outside the box. You can throw uh, you know, whatever metaphor you want to look at it. You're, you're, you clearly have this motivation to be looking at things from a, a, gr a greater position of abstraction, maybe mm -hmm. detachment, gestalt, whatever you want to say. Ha have you, is this characteristic of you? Have you always been driven in this particular direction in terms of research? I think that um, my general mode of thinking I'm not really good at the tiny uh, details. It's just not my, uh, my strong suit. Where uh, it seems like my strengths lie is being to able to step back and sort of look at the big picture and uh, ask questions about, well, how does this relate to that? And, and, and just sort of look at the, the, the larger issues. So in, in some part, it was sort of out of necessity that I just don't really have the strengths of working out those, the, the detail models. You asked about how I came to, studying uh, meta-awareness. And that actually started with looking at a, uh, some work of a colleague of mine, a dear friend of mine, Dan Wagner, who had uh, a theory about ironic processes. And basically the idea is that when you try not to think about uh, a thought, that um, 
when you do that, you have two processes that are going on simultaneously. Uh, on the one hand, you have this uh, uh, controlled process, which is trying to think about uh, anything but the unwanted thought. In his right. case, he did a lot with trying not to think about white bears. So you have this one control process, which is trying to think about anything but white bears, and then you've got this automatic process, which is looking for white bears in order to go, whoop, whoop, there you go, don't think about that, there's a white bear. And the question was, what is that automatic process searching? Where is it searching? And Wagner said that it was searching pre-consciousness, which, which seemed possible, but it occurred to me that it could actually be searching consciousness, because you can think of, be thinking about a white bear without noticing that you're thinking about a white bear. This was sort of this, this, this key insight I, I felt that, that I had. And so it was in thinking about what the monitor was searching and realizing that you could think about something and not notice that you were thinking about something that made me realize we actually need a monitor for what's going on in the current contents of thought. And we've now done research where we tell people to try to not think about a, a relationship and then we um, ask them to press a button every time they notice themselves thinking about the relationship. And then in addition, we probe them periodically. We go, just now, were you thinking about that relationship? And what we find is that we routinely catch people thinking about it before they notice it themselves. Again, reiterating this point that a lot of times we can be thinking about something and yet not noticing that we're thinking about that something. It seems a, a theme throughout your work and your motivations is this distinction between the personal experiential nature of things and the description from the outside of what's actually going on. Is that, is that, is that fair to say? That's, that's absolutely right. This is a, a real passion of mine, is, is trying to find a, a balance, trying to find a way, a marriage, in effect, between the two really fundamentally different ways in which we understand the world. We understand the world, in my opinion, first and foremost, from a first-person perspective. That the, the thing that we know beyond certainty more than anything else is our own personal experience. We always start with that. But as scientists, we need to somehow find a third-person perspective to communicate and to uh, find consensus in scientific observation. So it's the challenge of finding that balance between the first-person and the third-person perspective that really captivates me. And if, if I'm a hardcore neuroscientist, I could imagine a hardcore neuroscientist would say, Jonathan, you're misguided here. Uh, there is no difference between these things. Science will tell us that there is, uh, if, if our technology gets better, we'll be able to put someone in the, the futuristic equivalent of an MRI machine and say, ah, oh, they're thinking this, ah, oh, they're thinking that, and we'll have a transparent model of what's actually going on inside their head, and their experiences will be able to be described perfectly well from the outside. That is my sense of what a hardcore neuroscientist would, would say, and I'm guessing you've probably met a few people like that in your time. What would your response be to that? Well, I've, uh, Dan Dennett was here, uh, and we had long dialogues on exactly this question. Dan Dennett is a, is a famous uh, philosopher in consciousness who holds very much uh, this, uh, this position. And I think that this is the kind of position upon which reasonable people can disagree. I personally can't quite fathom how people see it that way, but I understand that very, very intelligent people see it that way. Uh, so I, I acknowledge that... Um, well, you're a tolerant fellow. So I, maybe, <laughs> and maybe that, so they're misguided, but they're not evil. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of the way, that's the story I tell myself, but the, my, my public framing on this is, is that um, 
uh, that the, I understand why people would want to say that. I mean, I completely understand why Dan Dennett wants to get rid of this privileged first-person perspective. It's a thorn in his side that there's something that can't be scrutinized in the same way everything else right. can it's be. It's not accessible in a way scientifically, it's right? It's not accessible in a way scientifically. And that makes it, uh, you can't really, it's not tractable in, in some certain way. And so let's get rid of it. If it's not tractable, then we should dismiss it. But the problem is that when I step back and I ask, what is it, it's sort of Descartes' question, what do I know with absolute certainty? From my perspective, there's only one thing that I know with absolute certainty, and that is that I'm engaging in experience. I don't even necessarily know that reality exists. This could all be a dream. And so subjectivity is, it's, it's the axiom upon which everything else for me is based. And so to me, I can't see how you can, how you can get rid of that, that principled axiomatic aspect. Furthermore, I do think that it's possible that we can, uh, at some point, start to have tremendous insight into all of the content uh, that uh, is going on uh, in uh, somebody's mind. But that's always going to be through the filter of the first-person perspective of the scientist who's looking at that. And so when they say, oh, that person is seeing blue, uh, then they'll assume that the blue that that person is seeing is the same blue that, that they see. But there's no way for us to know. There's always this inverted a spectrum problem where it could be that you know your blue is my red and, and vice versa and it's not clear to me that we'll ever be able to solve that. So let me see if I can uh, rephrase your points so that I can uh, convince myself that, that I understand them fairly. Sure. So you tell me if, if this is okay. Right. So the first point it seems to me would, would be equivalent to saying Dan Dennett would put all data and experience on the same footing mm -hmm. which is to say uh, he could see that I'm thinking about ice cream cones he can see that it happens to be raining outside. He's got this compilation of, of, uh, of data points inside me, outside me, and he's making some, uh, at some level, he's putting them all on some, the same uh, status. Mm -hmm. Whereas this idea that my certainty of who I am, the subjective experience, you mentioned Descartes, this, uh, this famous notion that everything else could be, could be a trick, but I can't doubt the fact that it is at least a trick that's happening to me, that I am the one who is experiencing this. I could be dreaming, but at least there has to be an I who's dreaming. This idea is fundamentally hierarchical in the sense that uh, that's a, that conviction, that truth, is something which is unquestionable as opposed to something else. So there's a hierarchy involved in what I, what I can be certain of. Um, and Dan Dennett is trying to eliminate that hierarchy, and he can't do it. Is that, is that, a, is that a fair way of looking at it, That's, or am I... It's, rough, it's roughly right. There's one word you use there that, and Descartes used it too, I think, therefore, I am. Right. And I'm not even sure I'm comfortable with the term I there, as I think that that assumes uh, more of a construct than I think we necessarily... The whole self, you mean. Uh, the whole self, exactly. I don't think, I think it's not necessarily, I think, therefore, I am. It's more... Uh, I experience, therefore, experience exists, okay. right? And so it's, it's, it's this first person, it's that subjecti subjectivity, the first person perspective exists right. and is fundamental. Even anything more than like what an I is, it's possible that there's a, a, a slightly different entity at every moment. I, I don't even necessarily know that the entity that's in this moment is the same as the entity that's in that moment sure. and so on. But there is 
an experiencer, an observer at every moment, and that observer has a first-person perspective that is, that is absolutely uh, critical, and that is a different kind of perspective than the third-person perspective of, of science. And the challenge, though, is to not just throw up your hands and go, oh, well, gee, that's too bad. These two sides can't talk to each other. They're, they're ontologically different, and so we can't have a dialogue. No, the, the challenge is to accept. It's like, it's like accepting day and night. It's like we're not trying to get rid of one. We're not trying to get rid of the other. We're, we're going to try to understand how the two, while still recognizing that they have this qualitative difference, can work together. And so much of my research has really involved trying to create a, a meaningful dialogue, exchange back and forth between the first-person perspective and the third-person perspective of science. Let's talk specifically about how you do that. And, and maybe we can do that within the context of mind wandering, mm -hmm. uh, because I think it's important to get uh, concrete, too much talk about the self and, yeah. uh, and uh, mentioning Descartes. At least we're not mentioning Hegel. So, <laughs> <laughs> But, I, but I, I think it's important to, to, sure. to ground this uh, in, in concrete ideas. And you, and you were very concrete when you started, and you talked about uh, an experience that everyone seems to have had, reading something and then not actually paying very much attention to that, and then moreover recognizing that you've done that. Um, now you've done, uh, you've done a lot of science, you've done a lot of measurement, you've done a lot of analysis, using mind-wandering as a mechanism to explore this divide, this first-person, third-person divide. So maybe you can tell me a little bit about the actual experiments that you're doing, sure. the results that you've found, and, and concrete examples of what you mean by uh, exploring this divide with science. Sure. Uh, well, let's first um, define mind-wandering. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Mind-wandering is when you're doing something, say reading, and you uh, engage in thought that's completely unrelated to what you're doing. And something that I've always been concerned about is to what degree can we have confidence in people's reports about their inner experiences? One of the things about mind-wandering, it is, it is inherently a private experience. So it, I think this is one of the major reasons why it was largely ignored. There were a few key players who were studying it, but it was largely ignored by mainstream science up until about uh, 10 years ago because it just seemed beyond the, the, the pale for investigation. So, so and, and I want to uh, obviously let you resume, but the reason why it was considered beyond the pale, it seems to me, from what you're saying, is because it was so inherently inimical to this third-person perspective. Exactly. Because it was so obviously a first-person perspective. It's like, well, we can't do with that. We only have to deal with things from a third-person perspective. That's right. Yeah. And when people talked about it, you didn't really know. You, know, you can't validate it. How do you really know that that's what's going on? Right. And so people just were, were suspicious of it. We, we have a quote where they said, you know, well, it'd be very interesting to look at this mind-wandering ball reading, but how would you ever do that? Because you can't just ask people. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> um, but it turns out you can't. And that's exactly what we did. We have people reading, and then we use two different measures uh, to report mind-wandering. And these two different measures turn out to be very interesting and to give us different facets of the phenomena. First off, we um, ask people to press a button every time they notice themselves mind-wandering. Now, this has a lot of face validity with respect to meta-awareness. If you just press a button saying you were mind-wandering, that means that you know you're meta-aware, meta uh, that you're mind-wandering. That's, that's what it means. Sure. Uh, that's our definition. But then in addition to that, we also would randomly probe people at particular moments and go, just now were you mind-wandering? And what we found is that we routinely caught people mind-wandering 
uh, before they had noticed it themselves. And so we could then look at these two different measures. We could look at um, how often do they mind wander and notice it themselves, and how often do they mind wander and, and we catch them. And what is the relationship between these two different measures, we'll call them self-caught mind wandering and probe-caught mind wandering, and various different manipulations. And so are you able to then extrapolate from this statistically and say that this person on average because of your probing, mind wanders a certain frequency of the time and is only aware of it a lower frequency of the time and therefore, right. Right, does it go kind of like that? Exactly, so we can, we can do the probe catch ratio. What proportion of the time that we probed them did, um, were they uh, mind wandering? And that gives us a sense of how often they're mind wandering. And then we can look at how often in general do they uh, catch themselves mind wandering. So we can look at their frequency with which they're aware that they're mind wandering and the frequency uh, with which we catch them. We, I have to admit, we still have not perfectly found a way to combine both of those measures into a single common denominator. And this is actually, you know, someone can help us out with that. That'd be great. So we still, the self-catch the self is measured by the proportion of the number of times that people catch themselves, whereas the probe catch actually gives you an estimate of the proportion of time they're actually doing that, that they're actually uh, mind wandering. But what we can find is, is that people will say, uh, be mind-wandering for, say, 25% of the time, and yet they only notice it a few times. So it's clear that much of the time is going by and they're not noticing their mind-wandering. It appears that people will phase out, come back, and never notice that they were, uh, that they were gone. And one of the interesting things is we looked at the relationship between mind-wandering and reading comprehension performance. Now, you might have thought, given how much research had been dedicated to understanding reading failures and why people have difficulty uh, failing to read. And given how it is such a ubiquitous phenomena that it would have been looked at, this relationship. But when we first started investing in this, no one had looked at the relationship between mind wandering and reading comprehension. Wow. When was this? When did you start? We started this, well, the, the first publication was 2004, although we talked about it in 2002. Really? So, so yeah. 10 years ago and nobody looked at it? No, no one had looked at that. Exactly right. Yeah. And, um, what we found is massive correlations of 0 0.3, 0 0.4, sometimes 0 0.5 uh, between mind wandering and reading comprehension. And in some more recent stuff, we found that sort of the overall correlation between various different performance measures uh, and mind wandering is order of um, 25 to 50% of the variance. It's just whether or not people are, are paying attention. This is a huge part of how people do and when they're trying to do a challenging task is just are they able to stay right. on are they, task? Are they focused? Are, are they focused? So this turned out to be a really big breakthrough just by asking people, hey, right. what's going on in your head right now? <laughs> and, and what is the data? Just give me a sense of, uh, of your experimental feedback. I mean, how uh, I realize uh, one can't generalize. So you have to put in caveats all over the place. Mm -hmm. But just your general sense of the average person reading the average text, how often would you imagine that they would be, they would be mind wandering? Let's, let's not talk about meta-awareness right. and, and their awareness of that. We just, it's around somewhere between 15 to 25% of the time. Wow. They're, they're mind wandering while they're reading. And when they're mind wandering, they're not getting it. They really aren't. If you, sure. If you ask them about that material, um, they, they don't show it. But this is also going back to the previous question. One of the things that's been so gratifying about this line of research is that here we have a self-report measure based entirely on internal experience and yet uh, it tends to be very well validated by a variety of other different measures. So one measure we have is we have the text turning to gibberish. So they're reading along 
And at some point, we start switching the nouns around so it doesn't make any sense. They actually will continue to read. Yeah, if you're mind-wandering. If you're mind-wandering, you don't know. But sure enough, if they're mind-wandering, uh, they won't notice. And if we probe them when they've missed it for a while, normally they were mind-wandering at a particular time. So that's one measure that... Is there, is there a threshold somehow? Like, I mean, I could imagine turning this to gibberish and then just keep turning it into characters, into birds. Into, like, at some point, there's, right. it turns into a probe, presumably, right? right. Where they can, they can say, oh, right. wait a minute, I, I got caught. Yeah, that's a great question. We haven't... What you really want to do is a, a paradigmatic changing the degree of violation uh, and then seeing exactly where right. they always uh, come back. And that's, a, a, that's on the list of okay. studies to do that we just haven't done that yet. But uh, it makes great sense. Other measures that we've also found to be uh, predictive of mind-wandering in the context of reading is uh, gaze duration. So when people are reading, their eyes focus on uh, individual words for varying lengths depending on the quality of the words. So high-frequency words we focus on for less time than low-frequency words. So you can basically uh, measure the variability in gaze duration as a function of the frequency of words. And when people are mind-wandering, they show a very different pattern of gaze durations than when they're... Uh, well, they're probably all equivalent, I would guess. If they're mind-wandering, it's more or less equivalent as opposed to the... Exactly. They tend to read uh, slower uh, and with uh, less variability between uh, one word and the other. We also can do it when they're doing it by uh, advancing the text with their hand. And we get, find the same thing, less sensitivity to variability. But for some reason, we don't quite know why, when they're um, advancing with their hand, when they're mind-wandering, they go faster. So when you're mind-wandering with your eyes, they go slower, but with the hand, you go faster. So it's hard to know if that's interesting or just obscure, well, but it's... Well, it could be both. It may be both, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> do, do you switch the text around so that you, you can... I can imagine you can actually um, use this entire experimental apparatus to do something completely different, which is to probe the boringness of texts. So, <laughs> so I can imagine you would have... Um, Rather than, than, than studying mind-wandering, you can study how quickly people start mind-wandering with a given text, and you can actually scientifically measure boringness of a text, how quickly people start to, I'm just being a little bit uh, flippant. But do you, do you, do you play around with the, with the different types of text? So uh, we have. It really engage you're, you're, something stone? And your, your intuition is, uh, is, is right. Uh, in general, uh, boring texts uh, tend to lead to more mind-wandering. But there's one thing that we haven't uh, done uh, that I, there's also another there's a lot of stuff that's still on the list Correct. my intuition is that really interesting texts of a particular type sort of the uh, imagine some sort of uh, narrative text that's that's really uh, interesting but not like a novel or something like that but which is thought-provoking that that kind of text might actually prompt mind wanting because you're thinking, wow, well, that's it. You know, and right. you start thinking about something else. So right. I, it may not be a perfectly linear relationship. It may be that the certain kinds of really interesting text may actually prompt sure. mind wandering also. Sure, that makes sense. Also things that force you, I guess, force you to go off on tangents, which is what, what you're saying, or at least maybe not force, but, but uh, increase the likelihood exactly. that you're going to go off on tangents, or even things that require more work. I mean, if you're, if you're reading something which is very straightforward, as you say, a story where you don't have to add very much, you're, it's like watching a movie. Something is being described to mm -hmm. you. Oh, you want, I want to know what happens. Did he kill her with a mm -hmm. knife or, you know, whatever. Um, not that all novels are like that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, 
but, I, but if, you, if you're reading a more technical historical work where you're constantly forced to, to think, gosh, who was this person again? When was that historical period? He's comparing this person to that person. Um, presumably there would be, I guess this is just another way of saying what you're saying, so it's not terribly innovative, but uh, that would trigger all sorts of, of, of possible paths and, and, and increase the likelihood that people would get off. Yeah, now it's one thing that's um, a little challenging in terms of the definition of mind-wandering is uh, when you're thinking, when you're elaborating on the actual material of the, of the novel, say, and you're, you're thinking about, let's say, well, that character was, was doing this, that's sort of in this weird, fuzzy uh, place uh, in which it's, it's not entirely full-on mind-wandering in the sense that it's, it's, it's closely related and you're actually embellishing the mental model that you're developing about that particular thing. Whereas other kinds of mind-wandering are uh, entirely uh, unrelated. And I do think that there may be certain kinds of material where uh, they're sort of provocative, but you can then have a thought that's actually in the same category of being provocative, but maybe somewhat far removed from the content of the material itself. Right. So if I know something about uh, cognitive science, because I've been watching all these cognitive science interviews, I can say, well, hang on a minute. We have all these fancy diagnostic tools that we know. We have functional MRI, we have EEGs, we have PET scans, we have all the rest of that. What's happening in the brain when people are mind wandering? Mm -hmm. um, have you done studies, uh, or is it possible even to do studies at this preliminary level, where you can somehow track and evaluate what's happening at a neurophysiological level about what, what's going on when people are mind wandering? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is another reason why I think mind wandering uh, has uh, taken off in the last 10 years, is that indep entirely independently, of the research on mind wandering. Uh, they were looking at um, activation in the brain uh, and they looked at what happens when you don't give people anything to do at all. And they found that there were a, a network which has now been called the default network uh, that becomes more active when people are given nothing to do than when they're having a task. And this was sort of puzzling. You know, why would the brain be more active when it's not doing anything? Yeah. And then they started to think, oh, well, I guess they're still doing something even when you don't give them anything to do and they're probably engaging in mind wandering. And so we have now done studies using very much the same kind of paradigm that I mentioned before. Instead of reading, we have them doing a, a non-demanding vigilance task and then we probe them periodically and we go, just now was your mind wandering? And furthermore, we also ask them if, if it was mind wandering, did you know that it was mind wandering? And what we find is that this region, this default network, uh, that is active when you give people nothing to do is also active when people are mind wandering and especially so when they're mind wandering and they don't know it. So it, it, we, we are finding now, this was actually one of the very first studies which used as the measure of, um, in, in fMRI studies you have um, to subtraction method where you look at under one circumstance and under another circumstance. Because right, the brain's always doing stuff. So. That's right. And so sometimes you have them either, you know, doing a working memory that's a challenging working memory task or a less challenging working memory task and looking at the difference. And then you go, oh, well, this is where working memory is because when you increase the challengingness of it, this is the area of the brain that becomes active. In our study, we looked at what happens when just when people say they were on task versus off task. So they're doing the exact same thing. And we're just looking at their self-report about whether or not they were mind wandering. And we find 
qualitative differences in brain activation. So this is, again, further validation that we can really use the self-report to triangulate on this internal state, and also that when people are mind-wandering, this very same default network becomes active. We've also looked at um, ERP, evoked response potential. That's where you measure people's electrical brain activity, and you link it to particular events, and then you uh, see uh, what happens following those events. And there are a number of different um, uh, time courses. So there's something called the P3, which is sort of an orienting response that happens at a particular moment after uh, an event. And what we looked at was when we give people the same vigilance task and uh, we probe them and ask them, were you mind wandering or not? And then we look at the ERP, the evoked response potential, prior to um, the probe, we find that uh, these responses are dampened when people are mind wandering. In other words, they are paying less attention to the external world when they are mind wandering. And this leads to what we call the perceptual decoupling hypothesis, which is to say that when you're mind wandering, you tune out uh, the external world and you actually reduce your external sensitivity to the incoming information. So it's deadened somehow in, in, in a way that your, your senses, because maybe exactly. your brain is trying to get you to concentrate on whatever it is that you're concentrating on. Exactly. It seems to me there are two, two different things going on with mind wandering. Um, and you've been very explicit about making this distinction, but I think it's, it's worth emphasizing for all sorts of reasons. There's the mind wandering itself, What's happening in the brain when you're mind wandering? And I want to ask a, a few more questions about that along the lines of what you've said. And then as you pointed out, there's the, the meta level. There's the awareness that you're mind wandering. And I want to know, I'm interested in what's actually happening uh, in the brain, in the mind, however you want to describe it, um, when one has this uh, awareness of, of the fact that one is mind wandering. Mm -hmm. Let me get to mind wandering itself first, because mm -hmm. uh, you uh, you were just talking about this, this notion of the brain somehow, as it's mind wandering, becoming less susceptible, deadened somewhat to, these, to the external world. Mm -hmm. Does that mean, as you're doing these studies, that there's other activity going on inside uh, in different areas of the brain or different types of activity? I could imagine, just again, off the top of my head, okay, I'm daydreaming, I'm mind-wandering, I have this text in front of me, I'm not really reading it. In fact, I'm thinking about what I'm going to make for dinner, and I'm thinking about all sorts, I'm imagining, I'm coming up with all these mental constructs. Is there typically a part of the brain which is associated with that other activity that is not part of actually reading the words? Do you see that in the data, or is it, or is it, yeah. is that too unfocused? Well, so uh, what you, there's this the default network, which involves a, a number of different uh, regions, and when you're uh, mind-wandering, that becomes uh, more active, and that seems to be sort of related to things, thoughts about the self, future thinking, uh, uh, engaging in creative processes. And in fact, we find, uh, even though mind-wandering is problematic, and particularly for whatever you're doing, it also has this other side, which is that it seems to facilitate planning, it seems to facilitate creative incubation. So, when you're mind wandering, you're undermining what you're doing at the moment, but it may be in the service of other tasks. Yeah, I definitely want to get back to that. But let, let me ask you about this default network. Mm -hmm. um, 
so where where is that? I realize I'm not looking for it's right here, <laughs> you know, this particular neuron or that. But in general, what more can you say about what characterizes this default network based upon the knowledge that you that you have, be it preliminary or, or otherwise? It's actually distributed in a number of different regions throughout the brain. There's a, just a number. It's a network right. of regions that are simultaneously active when people are non-engaged in uh, a demanding task. And so uh, speculation, because I know we're very far from uh, a clear understanding of this, the speculation is that this network uh, is primarily associated with people imagining different uh, tasks that they're going to be able to do, or they're, they're, they're planning ahead, or they're, they're, they're building these mental constructs instead of actually focusing on what they're doing. Is that a fair way to, to describe it? Yeah, so they're, they're, develop, they're building mental models, uh, imagining the future, thinking about the past, uh, thinking about the self. A lot, of, uh, a lot of the thought that takes place when, when it's active involves uh, self-reflection, self-thought. Uh, so it, it's, it's sort of what happens when people are not really engaged in the here and now. Okay. I want to get to this distinction again between mind-wandering and awareness, the meta level, mm -hmm. of noticing that you're mind-wandering. So you've done these studies where you've been able to uh, probe the people to, to get some some sense of a baseline of how often they're actually doing it and uh, compared with their own understanding and admission of when they're doing it by pressing this button. Um, how, what's the percentage, more or less, roughly, of uh, awareness of, of mind wandering compared to your best guess at how much they're actually mind wandering? Mm -hmm. How often does it happen? You said 25% before, or, or is, am I mis misrecollecting? So um, what happens is when you um, catch people uh, mind wandering, it's about 25% of the time. So if you probe them, about 25% oh, of the time. 25% they are mind wandering. They are mind wandering, okay. that's so, right. And then um, it's, oh, it's a little bit difficult to um, gauge what proportion of the time that you catch them that they are aware of it because the self-caught and the probe-caught have different metrics. But another way of measuring meta-awareness is you just ask them after the fact, after you catch them, had you noticed that you were mind wandering? Right. And um, about there, about half the time they had noticed and about half the time they hadn't. So a significant proportion of the time, not only are people mind-wandering, but they're mind-wandering and they don't realize that they're mind-wandering. Right. And you had started off at the beginning saying that it's surprising, shocking even, that very little attention had been paid to this when you look at educational pedagogy and how important it is to teach people how to read and focus and all the rest of that. Is one of your hopes that as your research develops and as you get better and better metrics and, and a deeper understanding of exactly what's going on, that this will somehow be incorporated within educational philosophy and that educators are actually, uh, will start paying more attention to this in terms of their effectiveness of teaching? Oh yes, absolutely. Right now, we ha we've had two grants from the Institute of Educational Science funding our research on mind wandering, specifically with the goal of coming up with techniques to both identify mind wandering in the classroom and also to reduce it. And we've had uh, some successes. Uh, we found that training people with mindfulness, so meditation, actually seems to help people to reduce their mind wandering. And in so doing, uh, improve reading comprehension and performance on working memory measures. Okay, cool. Um, so a moment ago, you were going off in a somewhat different direction where I cut you off, because I tend to do that, um, about looking at the positive aspects of this. So, so far we've, we talk about mind wandering and everything is very pejorative. People should stay focused, they should be able to read. What, um, let's, let's see if we can 
develop techniques uh, to, to better uh, increase the likelihood that they will not mind wander. But mind wandering seems to have some very distinct advantages as well, which would make sense given the fact that so many people do it so often, you would think it would have some evolutionary advantage at some level. So what are some of the advantages that you found? Yeah, on the one hand, uh, we are trying to figure out how to keep mind wandering uh, at bay because it has all these disruptive effects to reading comprehension and a performance on a variety of different tasks. And yet, on the other hand, uh, we have evidence that it's helpful and useful. And so we're trying to find the balance between these two different perspectives. But there definitely is evidence that mind wandering is functional, which you would kind of expect. I mean, why would we have evolved to do it so right. often if it was completely always just messing us up? Right. And, and some of the things that we've found it to be helpful for is one for planning, that when you're, you don't have a tremendous amount of demand that's going on at the moment, it gives you an opportunity to think about what you're gonna be doing in the future. But I think the thing that we find most exciting is a creativity. We did one study in which we gave people a creativity task. We asked them to come up with as many uses for common objects such as a brick or a hanger as they could. Uh, and then we introduced a break in which various different things could happen. They can either be given a very demanding task in which there was little opportunity for mind wandering or a less demanding task where there was more opportunity for mind wandering or they were given no break at all or they were given just nothing to do at all and just asked to sit there. And then we reintroduced the uh, problem that they'd been working on before as well as some new versions and looked at the benefit of the breaks on their creativity. And what we found is, is that the non-demanding task led to the biggest incubation benefit. That is, they, were, they came up with more novel, new, unusual uses for the items that they'd worked on before when they were given a non-demanding task. Interestingly, even more so than giving them nothing to do at all. Right. So it seems as if when you give the mind the opportunity to uh, sort of distract itself while still engaging in a little something, uh, that that seems to be uniquely helpful in enabling the mind to come up with uh, new ideas. It sort of stirs the pot of creativity and allows new stuff to bubble up. The people who weren't doing anything at all, who were just sitting there, did they do better or worse than the people who were involved in a you know, a much more rigorous task which left very little time for They did exactly life. the same. Really? Yeah. For some reason, it was the non-demanding task that seemed to be uh, the most useful. And, and this kind of makes sense if you're um, working on a paper and you're stumped. I oftentimes will get up and take a walk. Right. I won't just close the... Sit, I won't just sit there. <laughs> exactly, right? There's something about doing a something else which seems to have... Um, uh, stir the pot a little bit. It somehow allows your mind to sort of dart in and out and back and forth and that seems to be very useful. We, we have another study going on right now where we asked uh, physicists and writers every day for two weeks if they had any creative ideas. No, physicists and, wouldn't have any. <laughs> they claimed they did. <laughs> Although they didn't, they didn't think that they were as creative as the creative writers did. They really, they oh, really they, put it. Oh, they didn't think they were. That's right. The, the physicists it, every day, they, I would have thought that they would have thought that they were, but they <laughs> well, we can, there's no again. It's like comparing self-cod and probe-cod. There's the right. different metrics, but um, what we found is is that the physicists and the writers both about 40 percent of the creative ideas that they reported having happened during periods of mind wandering. That is either when they were engaged in something unrelated to what the idea was about, or when they were say in the shower or doing 
chores or doing bills or, or something like that. So a large proportion of the ideas of creative individuals seemed to happen uh, during mind wandering. Furthermore, um, there were qualitative differences in people's reports of the phenomenology of the creative idea. So creative ideas that happened during mind wandering were more likely to be characterized as overcoming an impasse and more likely to be characterized as an aha uh, experience. So deeply creative, genuinely insightful. Well, that's a, now, it, it turns out to be a little bit more complicated than this. We then contacted them six months later and asked them, so uh, we gave them all the ideas that they had and said, do you remember this idea? Do you remember that idea? Right. Whatever happened to that idea? Right. And there, actually, we found a difference between um, the creative ideas that happened during mind wandering, especially the aha mind wandering for the physicists versus the writers. For the physicists, the creative ideas that they had during mind wandering, they characterized as being aha, those actually went up a little bit. They, they actually thought they were more creative a little bit uh, afterwards. Whereas for the writers, those ideas um, didn't do so well. They tended to uh, go down in value. And I think this may be because physicists may be better able to evaluate whether an idea has got potential or not than a writer, because there's so many different ways that an idea might go for a writer that it's harder for them to assess. And writers have more ideas, basically. They, they have more ideas, and they have a harder time knowing how useful a particular idea is going to be at the time, right. whereas a physicist is able to sort of do the calculation and go, yeah, you know, I think this one's got real potential. Right. Well, listening to you speak about that, um, I'm struck by the notion that this is something that resonates very deeply, I would imagine, with almost everyone. I mean, I would be hard-pressed to imagine that there would be people out there who haven't personally experienced this, distracting themselves uh, in some relatively mundane task, mowing the lawn, being in the shower, going for a walk, and coming up with a wealth of interesting insights that they wouldn't normally have. As you say, you're stuck on a problem. You don't just sit there. You often take a break, and taking a break usually means going off doing something you're, you're not really engaged in 100%, your mind is still working. So this is something which is very, very common to the human experience, and it strikes me as odd that, um, as I understand it, not too many people have actually studied this or, or given this very much attention. It seems like this is a, a classic case of, of, a, of a correlation with creative moments. Does, yeah. that, does that strike you as a bit, a bit odd? I mean, you, you have these ideas of Einstein, what did he used to do? Well, he'd go for a walk. Of course, Einstein may not be the, the best example for everyone, but, but there is this understanding that the mind is able to work at different levels, and very often when we're distracting ourselves up to a point, it can actually enhance our overall uh, likelihood of coming up with breakthrough ideas. I mean, this is in the, this is in the popular consciousness, no? Yeah. So, so why is it that you psychology guys have taken so long to actually get to the bottom of this? <laughs> Well, I mean, I have to say, I'm a little grateful because it left some low-hanging sure. fruit for me. So, you know, <laughs> thank you, everybody. Um, but um, I think it's because uh, psychology tends to focus on laboratory-based studies and on laboratory-based studies in which there are very explicit, externally measurable uh, behavior. So this is getting back to the point that we talked about earlier between the third person and the first person. Is that... Is exactly, that right. So to, to study this... Uh, requires you to ask people to talk about the ideas that they had. So it's, you're requiring people's uh, first-person reports about recharacterizing their creative experiences. In the, the physics and writer study, we actually are looking people in their everyday lives, which 
uh, psychology has been hmm. uh, slow to go to. So because you wouldn't want to do anything that applies to people's everyday lives. Well, <laughs> I don't want to give us too bad, too bad of a name. The 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 typical idea is that we want to look at things very carefully and precisely under very controlled circumstances, right. and we just don't have enough control in, under those circumstances, and we would right. be wary about what we might uh, discover. But what's interesting is that that's a very scientific response. We, we the, the, the experiment is not a worthwhile experiment unless we have a rigorous control. Um, but what I said a moment ago when I was kidding a little bit is that that's ironic because if you actually want to be able to do something which describes real life, real life doesn't happen in a controlled environment. And so you should at least pay attention to that <laughs> at some right. point. The, the real challenge, and this is what we've been trying to do in my lab, is to do both, to right. use both the uh, rigorous uh, experimental studies, for example, the uh, creative incubation study that I mentioned in which we have people working at a computer, we give them a task, and then we measure their mind wandering, and then we give them the task again. And then to combine that with the more real world type of paradigm where we have actual creative individuals and then ask them at the end of every day what cre creative ideas they had. We're also taking advantage of another measure which is very, very useful, which is experience sampling where you have a smartphone beep them at particular moments of the day and go, you know, just now, have you had any creative ideas? And then also asking them to report it. So we now are able to take technology and bring it into the field in a way that we weren't able to do in the past. And this is going to increase our ability to take the same sort of precision that we have in laboratory situations and apply it in more everyday uh, contexts. And by doing this, by having the smartphones that probe people, presumably what you're doing is, again, you're crossing this awareness, meta-awareness divide because people might have some epiphany and might not even be aware of it. They might, they might come to realize it later and your smartphone is, is probing them to, to, to an extent where it might actually render them conscious of this. Is that's that right? right, yeah. And so one thing that's that's very interesting is asking the question, what is the reactivity of the, of the smartphone? And so in the study we're doing right now, some people are carrying the smartphone and other people are not. And then at the end of the day, in both conditions, we're asking them, what, I, what ideas did you have? And so one interesting idea that um, you suggested just then is that it may be that carrying these around may actually, at the end of the day, they may have had, seem to have had more ideas because mind-wandering episodes that may have come, would have otherwise come and gone without a trace may now be recorded. I have to say it's also possible that some people may have the opposite experience. Um, Meta-awareness uh, can be very useful in terms of getting you back on track, but it can also be disruptive uh, sometimes. Um, when you're, uh, when you're in a flow state, for example, you're playing tennis and you're really just hitting the ball just right in the middle and you're thinking, wow, this is great, I'm in a flow state, I'm hitting the ball right in the middle and then you, and screw, then, up. And yeah. then you screw up, right? <laughs> and we've actually done some research on this and so there, there is, again, there's always sort of this, this uh, hit and miss aspect right. of it. And the so pros it's and also, cons of meta-awareness. Pros and cons of meta-awareness. You want to be meta-aware right when it's useful and not when it's not. Huh. Because, because the, somehow will consciousness can somehow impede things that are, that are happening that, that you want to actually have happen. That's right. My, uh, having studied this for some time, my intuition is, is that more times than not, it's good to be explicit. That, uh, that in general, writing down ideas, uh, taking note of what's going on in your mind, uh, most of the time that's going to be useful, more time than not. But there are going to be times where you're 
sort of halfway through a half-baked idea, and when you try to like articulate it too soon, you somehow freeze it up. And in fact, we have some research. It, it doesn't always replicate, and we can come back to this issue uh, later on if you like, uh, which showed that when people thought out loud while trying to solve insight problems, it actually interfered with their ability to reach the solution. So it's, hmm. it's a real tricky balancing act. And what has the response been of, uh, over the years, because you've been involved in mind wandering for some time now. Uh, earlier I mentioned that it seems odd to me that when you look at creativity, uh, that very little attention seems to have been paid to this professionally, and, and you pointed out all the very good reasons why little attention had been paid to it, difficulty to control, first-person accounts, all the rest of this. But nonetheless, my guess is that uh, the people would recognize there's something to this. Maybe it's very difficult, maybe it's hard to measure. Is, is there a growing sense in the psychological community that yes, we should be paying much more attention to these sorts of things? Are other labs starting to do these things? Yeah. Are you collaborating with more and more people? Is it catching on? It's, it's really catching on. There were uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's, it's, it's burgeoning. Every year you're seeing you know, hundreds and hundreds more mind-wandering uh, papers than there had been in the, in the previous years. There's a, a number of labs that are taking on mind-wandering as sort of their primary area of research. Mind-wandering has now been published in science. Uh, a, a number of papers have published on, in science on mind-wandering. So it, it's really uh, taken on. We just uh, completed an annual review of psychology chapter on mind wandering, the first time that that topic had ever been covered uh, in, the, in the field. So uh, it's really quite exciting to see how the field is taken to it. Right, and presumably that, that gives a sense of critical mass, more opportunities for collaborations, different work, pushing things along, because there are so many different difficult things to measure and different things to measure, I would imagine. Yeah, and it's also exciting to think about the different areas in which it's happening. There was a recent study that came out looking at the cost of mind wandering while driving and showing that it may be the number one source of, uh, of serious car accidents. I just did a, a study with a, a colleague at NASA looking at mind wandering in the cockpit, showing that pilots mind wander with fair regularity and that it actually can interfere with their performance under think, some, yeah. <laughs> some circumstances. They also though show um, judicious mind wandering and this is something that I think is a really important point. Uh, there are good times to mind wander and bad times to mind wander and, and some people are better at sort of mind wandering at the right times and not at the wrong times. And in general, pilots are pretty good uh, at limiting their mind wandering to times when things are going well uh, and, and it's not going to be as much of a problem for them. Right. But as we were saying before in terms of creativity, there are, uh, there are many times when one wants to put oneself in a state conducive to mind wandering because that's if you're stuck, if you're stumped, you actually want to, be, want to be doing that. How does this relate, if at all, and I'm going to ask you to speculate, to, to different cognitive states, in particular the sleep state, for mm -hmm. example. I'm thinking, people talk, we use these words, daydreaming, yeah. right? And daydreaming seems to me to be in many ways fundamentally equivalent to, maybe not fundamentally, I'm begging the question, but in many ways it seems equivalent to mind wandering, at least uh, loosely, to first order. And of course, daydreaming doesn't seem all that far away from dreaming dreaming. Are there parallels between mind wandering and actually dreaming and REM sleep and all the rest of that? And have you thought about having some sort of collaboration with people in the sleep sciences as well? Yes, uh, that's a really good question. There's a lot of interesting parallels. You see similar brain areas of activation, so the default network is also very active uh, during a dream. 
You also notice uh, that uh, when people are dreaming, they have less meta-awareness, less metacognition. They sure. don't typically know sure. that they're dreaming much in the same way that when we're mind-wandering, we don't realize uh, that we're uh, mind-wandering. Dreaming has been, a particular, you know, dreaming REM has been associated with creative incubation, much the same way that uh, a mind-wandering has. What is, what is creative incubation? Creative incubation is, again, where when you take a, when you're working on a problem and you take a break, to sleep on it is creative incubation, and that's also what we found when you give people the problems to work on and then give them an opportunity to mind wander, they do better when they come back to it. Um, in addition, there's some interesting uh, aspects about theories of dreaming that are related to possible theories about why we mind wander. So one theory of dreaming builds on the fact that a substantial portion of dreams are negative in nature, and the idea is that what dreams do is they allow us to prepare for uh, dangerous situations. They're an opportunity for preparation. And we also find that a fair bit of mind wandering is, uh, is negative. And it may be that this is why we have these negative mind wandering, is that we're preparing for possible um, dangerous things that might, uh, might come up right. in, the, in the future. Hence the speculating on an evolutionary advantage to the whole, to the whole business. Exactly. Have, have you found, since you've been doing this research, and you've been doing it for some time from all different angles, that your mental processes have changed? Do you mind wander more or less? Do you stop yourself from mind wandering more because you're so aware of this? Do you encourage yourself to mind wander? Have you changed as a, as a person and as a productive being in the mind wandering capacity? <laughs> uh, that's a really good question. I, I mean, I think they oftentimes say that uh, in psychology that research is me-search. And uh, I think that it is not a coincidence uh, that I study mind wandering. I, you know, I, my head is in the clouds all the time, anyone would tell you that. And so um, it, it's not, uh, I, I certainly still indulge in the mind wandering that, that I always did. Um, I have changed in, in some ways. I've taken up a meditation. Uh, and one thing that's really interesting about meditation is it is a laboratory for watching mind wandering. When you sit there and try to focus on your breath, what you will watch again and again and again is how your mind drifts away right. from that. So it's been really interesting to, to develop that practice and, and watch my mind wander in that circumstance. I think my mind may wander uh, a little bit more at the right times as a result of this, that I've gotten maybe a little bit better at um, being judicious uh, and where I mind wander. I certainly, when I catch myself mind wandering, I, I sort of relish it a little bit. I go, wow, yeah, there we go again. Isn't that fun? You know, so I, actually experiencing that the phenomena that you study right there and then in your day-to-day -day life is, uh, is, is very gratifying to me. And also, I take advantage of this finding that mind-wandering leads to uh, creativity, and I indulge myself in walks uh, uh, quite a bit to help myself uh, sort through what the, the papers are that I want to work on and stuff. Sometimes I worry, I have to admit that I may be indulging myself too much, that I've, I've taken my own finding and I'm, I'm, uh, I need to spend more time actually at the word processor and less mind-wandering about it. Well, but research is me-search. Exactly, yeah. So next step is to, is to figure out exactly how to get the right balance between right. the mind-wandering and, and uh, the creativity. You mentioned meditation on a personal level. I can imagine that you would start looking at that more scientifically as well, in terms of a cross-section of people who are meditating, how meditation affects mind-wandering, because these things seem quite linked. I don't know, I don't pretend to know a great deal about it, but on the surface it seems like there's 
there's a there there in mm -hmm. terms of uh, experiments to conduct, uh, both from from a, a first person perspective and from a more scientifically rigorous fMRI perspective or or, or what have you. Are, have you done that? Are you planning on doing those sorts of Absolutely. things? Absolutely. Yeah. So one thing is we do find that maybe not that surprisingly, that mind-wandering and mindfulness are sort of opposites of each other. So people who mind-wander more are typically less mindful. And if you... So mindful is defined as the, the, the as focused? Or how, how would you define mindfulness? Mindfulness is, is exactly? typically defined as a focus in the present, a uh, typical continuous attention to what's going on in the here and now. So it, it, it's almost defined as an absence of mind wandering. And so when you use measures that uh, measure mindfulness, they tend to be predictive of people being better at staying on task. But we also find that manipulations that encourage mindfulness uh, also reduce mind wandering. Uh, so we find that if you have people engage in it, just a simple two week uh, mindfulness class where they're uh, meditating every day and learning the basic principles of how to meditate, that that then improves their um, performance on a number of different measures, including both reading and working memory, and does so by reducing their mind wandering. We also found that just having people do a 10-minute breathing task, where they just focus on their breath, trying to pay attention to the breath going in and out, that that alone, even with no experience in meditating, is sufficient to reduce their mind wandering on a vigilance task. There have been a number of other studies. One study looked at a three-month intervention and showed that people did less, uh, were better on the gibberish task that I mentioned uh, before. Right. So there really does seem to be uh, a genuine value of meditation in helping people to avoid some of the negative costs of mind-wandering. Right. But you mentioned, of course, that mind-wandering has a negative and, and a positive aspect to it. Are there any data or, or have there been any experiments to look at uh, the effect of meditation on the more positive aspects of mind wandering. Could it be the case that yes, people are able to focus more, but they're not indulging because of meditation in, in all of these creative aspects of mind wandering? Or, or is there any correlation there whatsoever? Or have you done any? So we, we did look in one study, we looked at the correlation between this um, questionnaire based measure of mindfulness and creativity. And we did actually find in that study that there was a, uh, a negative relationship, particularly for creative ideas that were happening in an aha kind of way. We found that again in a second experiment. In the third experiment, we did not see it. Again, the, some of these findings, you, sometimes you see them, sometimes you don't. We can, we can talk about that later as well. Um, but so we have, there is some evidence that there may be a, a downside to uh, too much mindfulness with respect to creativity or, or, or put another way that, you know, some of these people who are a little uh, flighty, uh, one upside is that they may also have the benefit of, of more creativity. Right. A couple of other things I want to get to, if I, if I may. Um, I want to move to abstracting even further away. I want to talk a little bit about consciousness as mm -hmm. a whole. What you think uh, is actually going on with, uh, with consciousness. But before, I'd like to go to something uh, uh, a little bit more specific, which is um, the notion of free will. Mm -hmm. So very often uh, people make links between free will and consciousness, free will and obviously scientific determinism and so forth. Um, there's the question of whether or not we as 
uh, as physiological beings actually have free will or whether we don't have free will. That's a whole area we could discuss. But some of your work involves looking at the effects of people's belief of whether or not they have free will, which again goes to some meta level of, uh, of appreciation. So uh, that struck me as, as quite interesting and, and original. Mm -hmm. and, and perhaps you can tell me about what sure. you found there and what motivated you too, because of course you have free will, what motivated you <laughs> to pursue that particular line of inquiry? Yeah, well, I was a little taken aback by the, the certainty with which uh, some of my uh, peers, I, I, I actually, peer is maybe not the right word for someone like Francis Crick, who's, you know, a luminary. But so Francis Crick wrote this book called The Astonishing Hypothesis, in which he says in no uncertain terms that you are just a pack of neurons uh, that you have no free will uh, and, you know, just lump it. That's, that's the way it is. This is what science has shown. Hold on. A Nobel laureate having strong, unequivocal views? I know. It seems impossible to comprehend. <laughs> Go figure. Uh, but it seemed to me that um, while I think, you know, this is an area in which reasonable people can disagree, to just say science is conclusively proven there's no such thing as free will, get over it, uh, it seemed premature to me. It just seemed to me that, does he really know that? And and I then began to worry, you know, what happens when you tell people that they have no such thing as free will, that it, it doesn't exist, Does this, is this going to impact them in any way? It, free will seems like kind of a useful belief to me, and I became concerned that it might be problematic to tell them they don't have it. So uh, Kathleen Voss and I uh, did a study in which um, we uh, exposed them to Francis Crick uh, message that you're just a pack of neurons, you have no free will, uh, and then we gave them the opportunity to cheat. And what we found is, is that on this little sort of artificial paradigm but where they could get away with cheating, they were more likely to cheat if they were told they had no such thing as free will. It was kind of a get out of jail free card. Don't blame me, right. you know, I don't have free will. And since then there have been a number of studies uh, showing a variety of benefits of uh, a belief in free will. Or actually most people believe in free will. It's really sort of a variety of costs to telling people that they, they lack free will. People become more aggressive. They uh, are uh, less helpful. There's a whole variety of different things that seem to happen when you tell them they don't have free will. So I guess there are two things to explore. One is whether or not if we are convinced that people do not actually have free will, it is prudent to actually be disseminating that loudly and proudly and the effects that that has on society. Um, which, of course, are determined in advance, if you believe that <laughs> hypothesis. <laughs> right. but, but, then, um, but then there's the question of whether we actually do. It's not surprising to me that, uh, that people who become convinced that everything is determined feel less responsible for their actions and start acting in perhaps less ethical ways than they might ordinarily. It's gratifying that there's some data to support that, but I'm not mm -hmm. terribly shocked by that, that hypothesis. Um, but you've skirted the question of whether you particularly believe that, that we have free wills and mm -hmm. we're just a pack of neurons. From your comments, I'm guessing that you do believe that we have free will, but I wanted to ask you directly. Yeah. So this is one of the, there, there are various different convictions that one has at sort of varying levels of, of certainty. Free will is a funny one for me. Um, some days when you ask me, it's like, absolutely, I am sure I have free will. And other days it's like, well, maybe, and then, you know. So I, I have to admit that I, I vacillate a little bit back and forth uh, on this 
on this topic. Right. Um, I don't have the same conviction about free will as I do, for example, about the privileged nature of first-person experience that we talked about before. There is one where I am absolutely, just completely, solidly persuaded that there's something about this first-person perspective that is unique to my vantage. But a free will, my inclination is to think uh, that we, we have it. And, and the metaphor that I like for thinking about free will is uh, sailing. So I'm actually not a, a sailor, but I've done some sailing enough to get sort of a sense of it. And my experience with sailing is, is that you, you set a tack and you head sort of in the direction of where you're going from every moment to moment. You can't exactly be sure where you're going to go because you're jostled by the waves and the wind and, and so on. But nevertheless, when you control it, you have some direction. So you're, you have some control, but not entire control. And sometimes, you, despite everything you're doing, you go completely in a, a different direction. And that's sort of my perspective on free will. I think that we, uh, we are jostled about by lots of forces that are entirely uh, outside of our um, personal agency, but that if we set a course in a particular way, we really can change uh, events to work in keeping with our uh, goals and desires. Now, how that plays out sort of in a metaphysic level is, is tricky. There's a couple of different versions of free will. Uh, one is known as the compatibilist, and this is sort of having your cake and eat it too. And I love this idea, except for the fact that I can never understand it. Uh, but the basic idea here is, is that philosophers will tell you, no, you can live in a totally deterministic universe and still have free will. And uh, they just say, because uh, you, know, you, you still have to make decisions, and those decisions matter. And so therefore, uh, you have free will for all intents and purposes, or something like that. And that, that, that sounds really good, but I, I don't really. How is that not free will? Well, because it's deterministic. You had to do, if we live in a world in which you had to do, or the, so they're saying this is free will. But the, the thing that makes it, um, the thing that makes it compatible is they're saying we live in a deterministic universe. So everything you do is the result of a whole set of physical causes that led up to it, your environment, your genetics, all the pressures that led up to it. Uh, so you, you, what you did was physically determined and nevertheless, you had free will. You see why that's a little hard to fully get your head around. Yeah, because it doesn't make any sense. Is that, uh, that, uh, that's the problem <laughs> with it. But other than that, it's a great idea, right? Because you can have your cake and eat it too. Sure. Uh, but this is actually, believe it or not, this is the dominant view among um, philosophers uh, right now. And, and they will explain it as, well, it's, it's, it's the kind of free will that matters. You, you're making decisions. You have to make decisions. And, but it's not a very satisfying. And then there's this other kind of free will, which is known as libertarian, which somehow is speculating that there is some extra something about conscious experience, which is, allows it to add into the mix its own special something. And uh, this is problematic because now you're, you're adding, you know, putting a ghost into the uh, machine and, you know, it's scientists... It's been done before for it, it, of years. It's but. been done before, uh, and scientists are not crazy about that, but I have to say that my... When, on the days in which I find myself believing in free will, a little ghost is leaking into the machine, I have to admit it. Right. Well, we all feel that, clearly. Uh, I, I think I would go so far as to speculate that you're not entirely 
human if you don't, strong words, I realize, but if you don't actually believe that you, that you have freedom to choose uh, and that, you are, that everything is determined. I mean, one can, one can be a philosopher and one can argue over preferably large quantities of alcohol about these sorts of things, but, um, but, I, but I think most people on an operational level would certainly think that they have free will. The question is whether or not they are deluding themselves in such a thought and whether everything, as you say, is programmed neurophysiologically and, uh, and in accordance with the laws of nature as we understand it, in which case, where, where, where do you go? But so, so we all feel that there's the, that ghost there. The question is, is there, is there a rigorous way in which we can even mount a theory right. that, can, that, can, that can do that? So, all right, so let me do just a little bit of sort of far out speculating here yeah, for, 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 for just a I think minute this is because the far out speculating hour right? yeah okay all right so i think we're now let's i've you know i've i've talked about some hard science but let me do a little far out speculating here i think that you have to start step back and say what are the things that are the absolute axioms that i need to take as as as, as fundamental as i mentioned before i think that subjective experience is one of those axiomatic things. We just have to uh, accept that, that, is, that it exists uh, and uh, that it has these, it's, it's a primitive, if you will. Right. And it's not clear how you're going to build that into this. We've already got a ghost in the machine already absolutely. with that absolutely. in a major, major way in, in my perspective. Yeah, so, I think that's absolutely right because there's no third, there's no God's eye view in that yeah. case. There's, there's the subjective thing is primary, then you necessarily impose a distinction, it seems to yeah. me. So, um, so we've already got a real problem here. We've yeah. already, so once we've got this real problem of this subjective thing that just isn't like everything else, and yet it's the most fundamental thing that there is, uh, then maybe it's not so unrealistic to say, all right, I've already had to you know, take the pill. Uh, let's say that there's another thing that is absolutely uh, essential, and that is free will. And, and I'll throw in one other thing which seems also, it seems to me that there are are three things that if you just found yourself in your body all of a sudden, you'd notice three things. One, that you had experience. Two, that when you thought, I raised my hand, I want to raise my hand, you can. And the third is that uh, time flows, that, that what we are experiencing is, what consciousness is, right. essentially, is this movement through time. And, and the curious thing is, is that these three things, the, the three things that seem to be sort of almost uh, unchallengeable, they're just so self-evident, uh, those three things are entirely not fitting in to the current model of science. So we've got uh, consciousness. It doesn't know what to do with that at all. Subjective. I mean, you could talk about from third-person perspective, but not how it is that a three-pound meatloaf is able to create experience. There's no clue how that is. It, has, it, it cannot accommodate this idea of free will. And uh, physicists tell me uh, that they imagine time as being... Uh, this block universe, uh, and there's the flow of time. Einstein said the flow of time, and this seems to be uh, the standard view, the flow of time is an illusion. Brian Greene, uh, a physicist who's very, very popular, uh, gave a talk here recently, and I asked him afterwards, I said, how do you reconcile the self-evident dynamic quality of experience with physicists' view that there, there, time does not flow, that it's essentially static? And he says, I see a psychiatrist. So my feeling is, is that there, we, there really may be some major 
rethinking that's going to be required uh, in order to reconcile the fact that the three things that seem to me to be absolutely most self-evidently true uh, just have no place in the current third-person uh, perspective. And to just go out a little bit further go, go, on, go on the limb, yeah. um, one thing is if you, so again, physicists think about... Um, Not all physicists, I should say. Oh, know, that's right. I, there mean, are, I mean, there are, first of all, we have to make a distinction between guys that are, are fundamental theoretical physicists and people who actually do stuff. I mean, most, your average physicist who's, who's in a lab, who's actually measuring things and, and who's, who's creating models and so forth, they don't seem to have a problem with time. Um, a lot of physicists uh, who, even the super abstract theorists, many are still, many are involved in trying to actually derive time as an emergent quantity. You're absolutely right about that, or who think that time is fixed. But there are quite a few who, who, who don't, so I think we, we should be fair. Fair, but is it, wouldn't you say it'd be fair to say that the, the prevailing view at the moment is this block universe among, model? Among some people, but this is, these are fashions. That, okay, that, well, that, I'm, that, I'm, that, I'm, hope, I'm hoping that that, that, that... that come and go. There's not enough experiments. See, the problem is we need, we need more accelerate. We need more things for these guys to do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so, so be that as me. So, so if you were to take the block universe yeah. seriously, as, yeah. as, as many uh, seem to, yeah. Now, um, now yeah. um, uh, the, the, there's not enough degrees of freedom to move through it, right? Your, yeah, your, your yeah. time is, is basically, oh. you no, can't, you got a problem, yeah. you, got a problem. Yeah. you yeah. can't sure. flow through time. Right. And so it seems to me we, we're short, we're short a degree of freedom, we need an, another dimension. And that it's possible that, that somehow consciousness corresponds to some fundamental aspect of reality and that it that there's some additional so dimension. You're, you're giving a way out. Your, 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 your sense seems to be, according to basic uh, uh, scientific uh, dogma, or at least aspects of that, we seem trapped. But if we look at things in this other way, we might be able to, uh, to, to get, a, uh, get a way That's out right. of this if we added If we added a subjective dimension of time, uh, then it's possible that we could move through objective time vis-a-vis -vis, uh, subjective time. And would the subjective dimension of time apply to creatures? We, we know it applies to us as humans, or at least I think it does. You may be a figment of my imagination, right. but I certainly, know, I certainly know I have experiences. Um, but would it apply to creatures you know, circling Alpha Centauri? Yeah, so, like so the, the one way of thinking about this is, is to buy into this notion of panpsychism, which is the notion that everything has a tiny little iota of, uh, of, of consciousness. Uh, and so everything is basically moving through subjective time as well. It's just that most things are, you know, so I don't think, they're not organized in any larger scale. So the, most things, are the, the subjective experience may be in the realm of, of a string or something like that, just some tiny little not thing. Not a super string, just or, a string. Or a super, I don't know, some, <laughs> not a, who, I'm not sure what the, what the level at which experience is happening for, for most things, but it may be that for most things they just don't get, uh, a, I don't think this cup is having a self-experience as a cup. But there may you. be, I'm with you uh, okay, we can agree on that. <laughs> but there may be little element within it that, that, has, that has some iota of experience and perhaps what nervous systems do or what, bra what brains do or what life does is to organize those bits into uh, larger constellations which are able to then have more extended experience. So we're all moving through, it's almost like a, in, this, in this crazy view, a wave of consciousness moving through this, uh, the block universe via this additional dimension. Most things with just this itty bitty bit of experience, but then 
brains allowing some things to have a much more extended level of experience. So it's interesting listening to you talk. It's almost, you mentioned Descartes earlier, it's almost like this is a resurrection of Cartesianism in the sense that there's mind stuff and there's non-mind stuff. And it seems, if I'm understanding you correctly, one thing you're speculating on, and you're admitting you're speculating, and I told you this was a speculative hour, so this is all fine and good and encouraged. But uh, the idea is that the universe, or at least large chunks of the universe, may be populated with this mind stuff. And as you, you refer to that cup, so there may be a little bit of mind stuff in that cup. And you might have a theory that that mind stuff um, only reaches the uh, subjective whole if you have a certain emergent structure of it, but that it exists throughout. And so right. you've got mind stuff. It seems like sort of Cartesianism too, in a way. You understand what I'm, mm -hmm. where, I'm, where I'm going with this? Is that, is that a fair uh, way to look at it? Or is well, that... I th with, what I'm trying to do is to... And it's a, it's a very delicate balance, as a lot of my thinking uh, is, or attempts to be, um, in that uh, the, the, the real problem with the, with the Cartesian approach is, is, you, is totally unclear how the one, how the physical and the mental interact, together, how sure. the one interacts with the other. Right. And, and that was really where it broke down. But in this case, what I'm arguing is, is that uh, subjectivity emerges by moving through one dimension relative to another dimension. So by positing this in terms of the interrelationship of movement by multiple dimensions, the, the, the goal is to try to produce a model in which the two things are actually built or interrelated to each other in, in a meaningful way as opposed to being entirely distinct with, I mean, he had this pineal gland, but that doesn't solve the problem. But when you recognize that when you move in dimensions, you move in one relative to another, that may provide a vehicle for thinking about the relationship that doesn't run into the dead end that Descartes did. I see. So I, I misunderstood. So so rather than look at mind stuff, you're looking at you're looking at some sort of cerebral or subjective or whatever you want to call it dimension in in uh, in a larger. In reality, so basically, the idea is that we're moving through the block universe relative to this uh, additional uh, this additional dimension of time, the subjective dimension of time. One additional far out thing about this is that once you have another dimension of time then uh, in, in principle, that could then, that means that for every moment of objective time, there are, there are multiple possible uh, subjective values, which then gives you possibly a little wiggle room uh, in terms of uh, futures. Uh, and so that may be uh, another place to possibly get free will in there, along with uh, one other thought is, that, you know, the sort of many worlds idea that, um, uh, quantum physics suggests that we may be sort of branching off and much of physics right now is talking about this idea of, uh, of, of multiple universes. So we, we may exist somehow in a block multiverse uh, and consciousness may allow us to in some way go down one branch of the block multiverse rather than another. Well dimensions and, and even universes uh are increasingly cheap these days. Right, so. I know. <laughs> Every, everyone gets deposit them. Why not me too? No, I, I hear you. And I'm yeah. very, I'm very uh, sympathetic to everyone should certainly have the right to be able to do so. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I have one more thing before I conclude. You may have some other things to, to say. And you had made some allusions to it earlier in the conversation. You've, you've been associated with quite a few interesting scientific results. Uh, and one of the ones that I believe you were talking about earlier, or at least making allusions to, was the decline effect. Um, and I think people know of, know of your work, at least some people in psychology certainly know of your work and in other fields. I was wondering if you could 
define that for us, first of all, and then give us some examples of your current thinking and, uh, with yeah. respect to that. All right. So um, the decline effect is, um, was, the term was actually coined in the area of parapsychology. And um, I was, uh, was very interested, uh, and still am, uh, in this idea that um, there may be phenomena that cannot be accounted for in uh, conventional explanations as we currently have them. And uh, so I started uh, doing some research in uh, precognition, uh, and we got a great effect. It was really exciting. And I felt we had just like, wow, we've got it here. You know, I, I told a colleague about this in, in the parapsychological event. He said, well, have you replicated it? And I said, yeah, well, we did once. Well, keep trying, because what you're likely to find is the decline effect. These effects just dwindle the more times you try to replicate them, which at first I was like, oh, no, you know, we've got, you know, that doesn't make sense. We, it's just you guys haven't been doing it right. We've got a really solid result here. It's going to replicate. That certainly goes against standard scientific dogma. It does. It's, if either it should be there or it shouldn't. It shouldn't just go away. That's, that's kind of a cheat. Um, but um, sure enough, it, it did. The, the more we, we ran it, it, it got uh, smaller and smaller. The, these, these actual, sorry to keep interrupting you, but I, I wanted to get a sense. The, these experiments that you're doing, this was on verbal overshadowing? Or no, no, I'll get, to, I'll get to verbal overshadowing in a second. Um, this was actually a, a precognition study. It was basically a reverse priming. So we um, showed people an uh, image very briefly and asked them if they knew what it was. And then sometime they saw it again and sometimes not. And the original finding was is that they were more likely to uh, claim that they saw it initially if they were going to see it uh, again. So it, it cannot be explained by... Uh, conventional uh, measures. But as I started to sort of think about the fact that I was no longer, I, I lost my effect, I realized that this was not the first time that I had seen effects dwindle. So I'd had this effect that I discovered actually as my PhD thesis uh, called verbal overshadowing, which is when you describe a face, it can interfere with your later ability to recognize it. And initially when I ran those experiments, we got very robust effects. Uh, and after uh, later when we did it, we sometimes got the effects, but oftentimes didn't get the effects. And we didn't get them to the same magnitude that we had when we uh, did it uh, initially. And uh, we also had done found verbal overshadowing in other cases, for example, describing, thinking out loud while solving an insight problem. Very robust effects at first, and then watched the effect uh, get smaller. So I realized it wasn't just the this sort of goofy parapsychology stuff that shows these things that I'd seen it in other places. And uh, I then sort of looked into the literature and it turns out that there's this decline effects sort of has haunted uh, various different uh, domains. Uh, drug trials oftentimes find when they repeatedly look at um, the effect of efficacy of drugs, the effects seem to be getting uh, smaller. And there are a number of different psychological uh, effects that just don't seem to be as big as they were uh, when they uh, started. So what's going on? Well, um, this is an open question. Um, the most likely explanation, and the one that, you, that um, is sort of the idea to beat, is regression to the mean. When you do a study and um, it works, you do it again. Uh, and if you do a study and it don't, doesn't work, uh, you don't. So you're always going to be pursuing one. If, if it's artificially inflated to begin with, you're always going to be pursuing those and not the other ones. Um, one problem with that is the regression to the mean account predicts that you get a large first effect, but then it should just 
vary around right. the mean from there it could on. Be in. Much lower. It could, could yeah. bounce all over the place. That's right. It should, this sort of gradual decline, which has been observed in a number of cases, uh, you shouldn't see. Other uh, phenomena that that could explain it is that, and I, I quite like this explanation, is that um, we have various aspects to our paradigm, some of which we know are important, but others of which are important, but we don't recognize them as being important. The experiment or some some particular aspect of the paradigm that we don't really realize as a, a key element. As you keep running the um, procedure, because you don't realize that it's important, the likelihood is, is that some of those elements are going to dwindle out. And so you're, you're going to get rid of some of the critical things that you need uh, because uh, you didn't realize that they were important. Another possibility is we just get better at developing, we improve our paradigm, and when we improve a paradigm, we get rid of the, the, the noise variance, which was artificially inflating it. In many cases, the decline effect can be due to publication bias, that people publish the results that work uh, and they don't publish the ones uh, that, that don't. And so there's sort of an inflation here or they um, are uh, cherry picking the a way that they do their analysis to artificially inflate the result. And when other people try to replicate, they're doing less cherry picking. So there are a whole host of different uh, possible explanations. And what we really need to do is a, a concerted effort to, to investigate this, uh, which involves both really doing um, systematic, careful meta-analyses across domains, looking at lots of different phenomena and examining exactly how robust those phenomena are, and also doing, and we've got a study going on to do this right now, prospective studies, where you, right now we've got uh, four different uh, research teams where each one of us are setting out to discover new things uh, findings that have, you know, make new scientific discoveries, and then each one of us will attempt to replicate our own scientific discovery and also replicate each other's. And just see, when we start off with fresh stuff, do we see this decline effect? Or if we do absolutely everything really, really tightly, really, really rigorously, get rid of all uh, our methodological artifact as best as possible, avoid all publication bias because we're going to know exactly what each other did, can we just make this decline effect go away? It's interesting. I mean, I, I do find examples, concrete examples, are very helpful to get your head around things. So, I, as you're, you mentioned the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. So, I'm thinking, okay, I've developed this drug, um, and and I I I suspect that this drug has whatever can cure this disease or something like that. So, I test this drug in a control group of fifty. I have a, I have fifty people who have this disease, who get the drug. 50 other people who have this disease who don't get the drug. Uh, I give this drug maybe to people who don't have this disease to see. And so I, I test it and I get certain results. Then I pick 150 other people uh, according to the same profile and I test it again. Um, I'm trying to understand how if, if the effect is going down, maybe I'm just limited in my, <laughs> in my thinking, but um, where, you know, What's, what's actually going on other than the fact that the drug isn't working? Do, do you understand what I'm right. saying? Like I'm, so I, I get the, the whole idea of bias. Okay, people are predisposed to see something they're not going to see. And that there are all these little factors. Right. And I, I'm sure that they exist. And, and, and there are all sorts of experiments that I can't really understand. But I'll take a drug test whether somebody's okay afterwards or whether right. somebody's not okay afterwards. If I do these experiments, my sense is that, gosh, if I'm noticing that this effect is, is declining, then there's something wrong with this drug. This drug right. isn't, isn't, isn't working. That's what my instincts are telling me. I find it hard to be able to imagine what, how I can come to some other conclusion. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. 
um, very, very specifically with respect to that particular yeah. so, um one case would be that when you when the when the study was done the first time you had the the best the most uh, eligible patients for the drug right. uh, and now the second time you do it um, the the sampling is is slightly different That's so, a very severe cases or, or, that's or right. whatever it is that's right people. so you can you can easily imagine that there would be a whole variety of these kinds of uh, things where when you do things the first time the, another possibility is that the doctors were really enthusiastic when they were uh, presenting to them the first time, and some of that energy is is dwindling in uh, in, in in subsequent ones. And so the the drug does work. Uh, it just didn't work. It worked better than it should have the first time because every all the there all the conditions factors that were were, were lined were lined up. And, and and I think that is the most sort of uh, reasonable, plausible, sensible. That is, I should just stop there uh, and and not mention that I do entertain. Uh, uh, other explanations. But, but you're going to do it anyway. But I'm going to do it anyhow because that's the <laughs> kind of guy I am, I'm afraid. Because, you know, when you do, again, when you do, when you see these things happen in your own lab, you know, again and again and again, uh, you just start to wonder whether there couldn't be some other thing that's going on that we just are just unable to acknowledge because it goes against the grain so much of our sensibilities. So what, what sort, for example? For example, okay, so just, I just want to emphasize, and I recognize that, you know, anyone who hears this, they're going to say, you know, geez, the guy is just, I was tracking him, now I think he's lost his mind. So I acknowledge but that. But that's, that's the whole point of the show. I mean, we bring people up to a certain point, we call it a cliff, and then we just go right over. <laughs> Here we go, then. Okay, so I'll take, a, I'll take an example. My mother went to Vegas for the first time, and she told... Uh, some of the people that, uh, who, were, who were regulars there that she was a uh, first-time gambler. And they're like, oh, I want some of that. I, you know, they, they had an experience, which was that first-time gamblers just won. Just for some reason, it, it, there's no reason, right? There's, 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 that should not be the case, the first-time gamblers who win. There's nothing, but, but they, they experienced this. So we certainly have uh, this idea of beginner's luck that, that is pervasive. And... It strikes me as possible, remotely, but nevertheless possible, that somehow beginner's luck is some sort of aspect of the fabric of the cosmos in some way that we don't quite understand, where when we set off on an auspicious direction, that somehow when we do it at first, if there's a little bit of signal there, it gets amplified more so than uh, it should be, uh, and that then Oh, th that sets us off in going in that direction. Most of the things in which they're declined, in fact, you still see like a teeny little glimmer. It never goes away entirely. It just somehow got exaggerated beyond what was, there, um, what was there initially. So if somehow beginner's luck is built into the, the fabric of the cosmos in some way that we, just, uh, that we don't understand, uh, then that could be uh, what is, um, what's driving... Uh, uh, the decline effect. And I have to admit that I have um, sometimes acted on this. This house, actually. Uh, I was uh, visiting the university, and they just were showing me houses uh, because uh, they wanted to give me a sense of the, um, of the housing market. And, I, and I, this was like the second or the third house that I saw. And I just didn't have confidence that because I saw this house on the second or third time, that the next, if I came back in six months, that I would find a house that I liked as well. It seemed like 
It doesn't work that way. That you, that you have to seize the moment. You can't just assume that you're just, when you do things the first time, you can't assume that it's just going to continue that way. And so um, it's, a, it, it's hard to know uh, how it possibly could be that um, this, could, this sort of serendipity, this taking advantage of initial things could be built into the system. But I think it's not outside the realm of at least my own uh, probabilities. So I've got to be honest with you. I think it's out there. But it doesn't strike me as necessarily as far out there as that whole extra dimension thing. That there you, you go. <laughs> and, and moreover, it's, um, I don't really know what we're talking about, but it, it, it doesn't strike me as implausible that these things are correlated at some, at some level, assuming, uh, 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 given this framework. So um, I was hoping for something a little bolder, frankly. I was, oh, I was, <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I do. I have, all right, I, got, I, got, I have one other one, okay. uh, which is um, somehow um, I, I got the term cosmic habituation, that, that somehow there is a habituation process. To, if there is some sort of collective consciousness or some sort of collective process that's taking place, when you keep doing the same thing, the... Uh, the universe just gets a little bit bored and just doesn't give you the same bang for your buck. Okay, so you've got you've got a universe that is mind wandering, basically. Yeah, yeah. It prefers no. It encourages. It's actually a universe that encourages mind wandering. It doesn't want you to keep doing the same thing again and again and again. It wants. Well, it encourages you. That's because, right. Exactly. Otherwise, it's stuck reading the same exactly. text all the time. Exactly. Which presumably it knew about ahead of time, but maybe not. Well, you know, who knows? <laughs> who knows about that? Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's been a lot of fun, Jonathan. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, it's been a real and, pleasure. And, uh, it's been great chatting with you. Is there anything else that you wanted to add, or have we, have we covered pretty well everything? I'll just, let me just say one more thing, which is about meta-awareness and uh, emotion. So meta-awareness, uh, we, we've talked about it a lot as it applies to uh, mind-wandering. But I think it's actually uh, a very ubiquitous uh, phenomena that much of the time, we aren't aware of our mental states of all sorts. Uh, and so one way in which we are routinely unaware of our mental states is with respect to uh, emotion. I think that much of the time we have experience of emotions, but only periodically do we check in and ask, you know, what am I feeling right now? And go, oh, look at that. I'm feeling this or I'm feeling that. Moreover, how we frame the emotion when we do that. So if we check in and we go, how am I feeling? We take that size it up and we go, oh, I'm feeling anxious, that'll have a very different effect than if we say, oh, I'm feeling excited. That um, just by the way in which we frame experience at the meta-aware level can really qualitatively influence uh, how we then uh, experience the next moment and even how we perform. A recent study showed that when people uh, just told themselves, I'm excited, uh, rather than try to relax prior to giving a speech, that they gave a better speech. So I think this is a really interesting aspect of meta-awareness. And then the one final thing about meta-awareness and emotion is how often we can just get it outright wrong. Not only do we sometimes when we check in, uh, do we, uh, or sorry, not only do we sometimes fail to check in about our emotions, but sometimes when we check in, we just get it wrong. So you maybe even had this experience of getting in an argument with someone saying, don't get so angry. I'm not angry, right? They're, there they are, They've, they, they sized up their emotion and they sure enough got it completely wrong. They're angry and yet uh, they just... They have no awareness of it. They have no awareness of it, even though they've, you've just asked them, you've given them the equivalent of an experience probe. 
Are you angry right now? No, right? So I think this is a really uh, interesting way to think about how meta-awareness can apply sort of across the board. Great. Well, thanks again. Yeah. I'll do that. It was, uh, Pleasure. It was, it was a lot of fun. And Great. I really, uh, thank you for inviting me into your... Uh, your wonderful northern home. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness we were able to have the fire and yeah. stay. <laughs> As I said, I now have to uh, write this. Uh, I, I literally have to write an essay that does exactly what uh, what we did just here. So well, hopefully it will be of some, yeah. of some this, use. This was to you. very useful. Yeah. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset. This conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Psychology, Volume 1, along with separate discussions with Diana Deutsch, Chris Frith, Stephen Hinshaw, and Stephen Costlin. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.